Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Coming up on today's show, Sony starts a new mobile division. We've got a recap of some more news from Gamescom. And The Last of Us Part 1 is finally here. And welcome to another episode of the What's Good Games podcast, your source for video game news, commentary, analysis, and funny stuff every Friday. I am Andrea Renee, joined by Miss Brittany Brombacher. Hello! And very special guest, Jay Lynn is back! Thanks so much for having me back on. I'm so thrilled to be here. (laughs) It's so good to see you again. Jay, for those of you who missed our show with them last year, is the hotline director for the Games and Online Harassment Hotline. And you are celebrating your second birthday, two years of helping people in the video games community. And congratulations. I'm so excited that you guys are going strong. Thanks. Yeah, I feel like we are just learning all the time and It's been so fascinating, even over just these two short years, to see and feel what it means to like listen and respond to what folks need in the games community around online harassment and everything in between. We're going to talk a lot more about the work that Jay and their team are doing over at the hotline in just a little bit. And we will also be welcoming our co-host, Rihanna Manuel Pena, in just a little bit as well. But we want to kick things off with a little bit of news. But before I do that, thank you so much to this month's Patreon producers, Chewy's Godson, Alex Rogopoulos, Ferris Satia, Justin Foshi, and Punctified. And if you want to join our Patreon community and help support our voices in video games, you can do so at patreon.com slash what's good games but thank you to some new podcast reviewers because we know that not everybody has a couple dollars to throw our way but maybe you have a couple minutes of time like this person Brittany <laughs> thank you for your very very, very creative very, very creative <laughs> yes and very nice review I did clip out this little snippet that says Rihanna has such a nice voice I could listen to her talk all day I need to get her into audiobooks and I agree. It's true. Yeah. She does have a very nice voice. Mm-hmm. She as do you, Jay, as I was mentioning oh, in our you. in our pre-show. We were, yeah. Such a great voice for podcast. So before we dive into the news, I need to take a moment to give a huge pat on the back and congratulations and call out to my co-host, the woman who was doing story time oh. at PAX West 2020, everybody. Hey. I would sound like the air horn if I had one. So if <laughs> Thank you missed you. at One Blonde Nerd's announcement, she's going to be on stage at PAX West with Xbox's Matt Booty for story time this year. Brittany, this is so exciting. Thank you. You cut out a perfect time because I just tried this <laughs> Crown Royal Whiskey Lemonade for the very first time. And boy, oh boy, that went places. I'll give my report on that in a second. But yes, this is incredibly fun. 
again. I feel very honored to be able to do this fun PAX West keynote. So this is going to be Friday, September 2nd at 1030 a.m. at the Hyatt Regency. Or if you're not there in person, because face it, travel's hard right now. COVID is still a thing. Twitch.tv slash PAX. And we'll be talking to Matt. We'll be talking about his 30 years in the industry, where he sees the industry going. There's some fun stories he has lined up. I did tell Xbox if they don't bring Fable that I'm quitting the gig. I don't think they took me seriously, and I don't think they're bringing Fable. So sorry about that. But no, it'll be fun. It's going to be a fun time, a very casual chit-chat with, I think, a very brilliant mind. His time at Midway will be fun and explored, and yeah, it'll be a good time. I really wasn't even planning on attending PAX, and it just kind of came together super last minute. Now hopefully I can check out a few games and stay safe. That's my goal. And I'm having a bit of FOMO about not going yeah. after seeing how many games did demos and exclusive hands-on at Gamescom. I was like, oh, I didn't think people were coming back this year. I'm yeah. not ready. I'm going to be curious to see because you can still get four-day passes. And I'm sure y'all both remember back in the olden days, those passes <laughs> would sell out immediately. So I still think there's obviously some apprehension, understandably so. But we'll see how it goes. Either way, it's going to be a fun little sense of normalcy. I haven't been to an event since PAX East 2020. That was a long time ago. Jay, have you gone to anything since the before times? <laughs> I was at PAX East 2020, and then we did GDC this year. So Anita and I both gave talks there. So we decided to just <laughs> yeah. buckle down and, and try to do it in as safe as a way that we could. And it seems like GDC, for the most part, was pretty safe with people wearing masks and sanitization stations. And pretty much every convention that I've seen has been that way. I was very briefly at San Diego Comic-Con last month, and I was very worried about that because that's a huge mm. show. Yeah. But it felt really safe. Everyone had to get a COVID break bracelet and you had to wear a mask inside and I was only in the show floor hall for a very brief amount of time to do a I did a quick lap snapped a couple pics and then I was like all right I'm out (laughs) but I had a great time at the panel and the panel rooms you know have those nice Mm -hmm. high ceilings and everyone was spaced out because they intentionally undersold the tickets to make sure it wasn't too crowded which was nice so I hope it all goes well. At GDC too, it was in San Francisco in March. It was a little chilly, but like being outside felt very doable and possible. The weather was nice. And there's that like Fiesta Gardens right by the convention center. So I really appreciated how much like outside space there was and Mm -hmm. just how down everyone was to just hang out outside if it wasn't like an official like event or meeting or something. And that definitely made me feel safer too. Well, good. Well, congrats, Brittany. We'll be watching online. And if y'all are going to be there, make sure you give her an extra loud cheer from the audience since I won't be there to to lead the chance myself. (laughs) The chance. (laughs) (laughs) Brittany rocks. Brittany rocks. That's what I would. I'm just going to hijack the keynote, make it all about me. Spoilers. I mean, yes. I mean, Matt Booty is great and wonderful and all, but the blonde nerd? Come on. Oh, one more thing. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I forgot to tell you. There's also a moth and wolf scotch tealu tasting event go what uh-huh i know no i know fomo i know i know i'll report back i'll <laughs> let you know how it goes but i saw that i was like why i need my money oh. i heard that they're also doing an elden ring scavenger hunt mm. and i was like that sounds fun i didn't too. hear about that that sounds dangerous i mean could be, could be. yeah depending on say. where they have clues and stuff yeah. but Sounds like there's going to be some fun times for the people who do make the trek. But enough about packs. We're going to talk about some news. First up, Sony has formed PlayStation Studios mobile division to create games based on new and existing IP. 
According to IGN, they have officially announced a committed expansion into mobile gaming established by their new mobile division, acquiring the untested Savage Game Studios to develop a AAA mobile live service action game. The new division will develop innovative on-the-go experiences based on new and existing PlayStation IP that meet PlayStation Studios' high-quality standards, Mm. according to the official blurb. And this new game studio, Savage, was founded by veterans of various game studios and games, including Spider-Man's Insomniac Games, World of Tanks, Wargaming, Clash of Clans, Supercell, Farmville, Zynga, and Angry Birds Rovio. So Zynga, Rovio, and Supercell are like the big guns there in the mobile space. And to me, this is no surprise that Sony is getting into mobile. Quite honestly, I thought it was going to happen a long time ago mm-hmm. because mobile has overtaken PC as the largest sector of video games spending globally. But yeah, I guess we're going to get uh, God of War on mobile. I mean, that's Maybe. it, right? <laughs> what is this going to be? And I was scratching my head like, okay, what are the most popular IP, video game IP to mobile translations? Obviously, Pokemon Go, you got your PUBG, you got your Call of Duty, you got your Minecraft. And I feel like those are so successful because they take the core mechanic of that game and they just make it easier to play on mobile. But even though we've seen Nintendo do some stuff with that Mario IP they have, don't know if you've heard about that one. I mean, and maybe I'm just wrong about this, but Andrew, I know you've dabbled in those. I feel like they haven't been so well received. No. Right? Okay. They, yeah. A couple of them have done decent download numbers in their launch month, but sustainability, no, because the, the gameplay loops are just not fun. I look specifically to Dr. Mario, which I was very excited about. And then it was super egregious, a lot of time gating. And the microtransactions I expect in mobile, but I expect them to be done well because we're at a point in mobile game development where you can't get away with some of these what I would call subpar user experience mechanics. Yeah. It's just a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. Jay, what do you think about Sony's leap into mobile gaming? Yeah. I mean, obviously, like you said, right, like mobile is where a lot of the money is and and where people are wanting to like develop more into. I think part of me loves mobile as this like arena that has traditionally been like kind of smaller, a little bit more experimental. It definitely gives me vibes from like old flash game (laughs) days where people were just like trying weird stuff and copying each other and, and doing a bunch of different iterations of a bunch of things. And so I wonder if this is a bit of a sunset of that as like more money and and more like AAA Mm -hmm. stuff comes into the space. But at the same time, mobile games are a different type of game. I'm someone who loves mobile games, obviously, as you can tell as I talk about this, but like they're a different type of game. And I think what we see very rarely succeed. I think Brit, you listed out some of the more successful ones where they kind of are able to like water Mm -hmm. down some of the mechanics and controls and keep it kind of the same game. Just you can play it on mobile now. I think that can succeed sometimes, but it it also flops a lot of times. I would love to see games take their IPs and just make a mobile game from it rather than trying to like port the PC or console experience onto mobile. Like just make it its own thing, make it something for mobile and make it something that actually works within that form factor. 
Yeah. Like, we don't want some Spider-Man shooting gallery where you web-sling targets. We want, like, an actual game made for your mobile phone. But no, I'm with, yeah. I mean, I'm with you. Like, Horizon building machines. Like, I don't know what they're going to do with this. And <laughs> it's it just makes me, you know, I, I hate that I'm kind of a, a bitter Betty about it. And I'm not super optimistic about how this is going to translate. And like you said, Jay, like, I think we are at this point where in the beginning, mobile, and we've been around since the beginning, mobile gaming was this fun new field where you're seeing so many silly things being done back mm-hmm. on you know i think about the games i used to play on my old ipod right like fun stuff like that and and now though i think the the path has been laid people know what works and what makes money and we're just seeing some of those same ideas being used over and over again because it makes a butt ton of money because you have people like me who spend tons of money in pokemon go anyway i'm part of the problem and i and i, I acknowledge it <laughs> but yeah i would just like to see something made for mobile that works for mobile that isn't just you said watered down because you're a very very kind soul i have dumbed down in my notes version of some of these ips that we have known to love and that's why i don't really touch them Andrew, I'd be curious if you'd ever go to the Animal Crossing mobile game, whatever that's called. New Horizons, I don't fucking remember what it's Pocket called. Camp. Pocket Camp. Pocket Camp. I've heard that one is actually pretty yeah. good, too. And I know Alexa always loved the Fire Emblem Horny Casino stuff. But I did spend a decent amount of time in Pocket Camp because there was a bunch of crossover items that you could get in New Horizons if you were playing in Pocket Camp. But I didn't keep up with it because as you're aware, baby. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So that really kind of dampened my ability to keep up with it because a lot of those types of games, you have to like daily log in or at least weekly log in to keep your account active and keep it kind of not in good standing, but to kind of get the most out of it. And I'm like, you, I am looking more for games that are specifically designed for mobile experiences instead of just ports that work on mobile. And I think that there's some examples of ports that do really well. I looked at games even like Call of Duty Mobile or Fortnite that I think excel in a mobile space when you wouldn't think they would. But then there's also ports that just kind of fall on their face and don't do well. And there's just so much clutter in the App Store and in Google Play right now. It's tough, but it's a it's a market that publishers cannot ignore. No, you want to make money. What's good games mobile game is what we need to make. Andrea, come on. Come on, Jay. You can get it on yeah. this too. You can spitball some ideas with us. <laughs> About a mo- our own mobile, our mobile game. game. We would just be drinking and swearing the whole time. That'd be mostly be me. I mean, you are a mobile app developer, Brittany. I've, that's You know just how tough it is to launch something <laughs> in mobile. Yeah. And by developer, I had ideas and I gave them to actual smart developers. And even that was very difficult. It's not easy. It's not. And so I'm not trying to like, you know, rain on anyone's parade, but we'll see what happens. That's all I'm saying. I'm very curious to see if Nintendo's ever going to bring Zelda to mobile, but we don't need to cross that bridge right now. That's a whole other rant I have gurgling inside of me that does not need to come out today. Before we get on to the next story, I think it's important to call out, particularly for video watchers at youtube.com slash what's good games, that Rihanna Manuel Pena is now here. Hello. <laughs> Looking fabulous, baby girl. I got a little held up at the hair salon, but I'm here. I had to make it. I had to make it. And you did. <laughs> you look wonderful. Thank the you. hair always on fleek, but looking even more fresh than normal. And it's a good thing because Brittany's about to get real sad oh. and she needs something to uplift <laughs> her and your amazing hair. We should just go to it's a full shot that, of Brie while I read this next story because it makes me happy. Okay. Oh, see, look how <laughs> gorgeous you are. Stop it. Oh my God. I love you. Okay. Yeah. So... <laughs> Resident Evil series has been canceled by Netflix after one season. Pour one out, folks. 
It's not coming mm. back. All right. This comes from mm. Deadline. I mean, no one's surprised by this. Let me be very clear. This was not lurking in the bushes and surprised us all. This was very, we knew this was coming. Netflix has opted not to order a second season of Resident Evil. It's action horror series loosely, very, very good word there, loosely, based on the popular video game franchise. The news, which comes a month and a half after the series' July 14th release, is not entirely surprising. Running partly in the shadow of mega genre hit Stranger Things, which was released within the same time frame, Resident Evil debuted at number two with an okay 72 million hours viewed for its opening weekend, but it did not deliver the big week two bump one would like to see for a new series as word of mouth spreads, raking in 73 million hours viewed in its second week for number three finish before dropping off into obscurity. That's my words. The latest Resident Evil incarnation also logged underwhelming 55% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 27% audience score. And then just recently, Lance Reddick, which I'd say is one of the best parts of that whole series. All the actors, by the way, phenomenal job. So it's not their fault. He did put out this statement. He said, I want to do this video because I wanted to do some acknowledgments and some thank yous. As all of you are well aware by now, our show Resident Evil on Netflix has been canceled and the haters and the trolls notwithstanding. I want to give a special thank you to all of the fans who watched the show got what we were doing and really loved it because there are a hell of a lot of you we worked our asses off we had a great time and we meet a hell of a show thank you onward and upward what a stand-up dude i know you know it kind of makes me sad but yeah so not a heck of a lot to say here i think i've talked about my thoughts and feelings and emotions with resident evil on netflix jay did you ever watch this i haven't okay Okay. Essentially, it boils down to this. When you take an IP like Resident Evil, where there's so much to play with, but you try to introduce too many storylines that don't lend itself to that lore or too many new characters that don't lend itself to that, it doesn't become a Resident Evil thing. It becomes a Resident Evil title, which is a post-apocalyptic show with some loosely tied Resident Evil characters to it. You know what I mean? And so they just try to do too much and it didn't work. It fell flat. There's just so much that could have been focused on that would have, I think, have kept the audience more in tune with it. But instead, you take this ginormous universe and you're like, hey, let's add these new characters, this new storyline, this, this, and this. And then you kind of lost that magic. You know, this isn't the first time something like this has fallen flat. More will come and hopefully the future iterations will be much more successful at least i can say i watched a netflix show for the first time in a very long time so hey (laughs) go me expanding my horizons yeah thanks 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 everybody i don't have anything that's fine there's nothing to add (laughs) it's just we've seen this time and time again in this industry it's fine i will add uh i want to also pour it out for babysitters club and archive 81 which have also been canceled on netflix this year yeah there's like a lot of really great shows over there that unfortunately don't make it through to follow-up seasons and it really is a shame sometimes because they do have some really great fan bases but if they don't think that's enough then they get the axe unfortunately they gotta save budget for the next too hot to handle apparently (laughs) Those island getaways are not cheap. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, I'd be really curious because I think it's so easy as consumers to say, oh, they just need to make it more like the games or more like what we know and love. But it never really happens that way. And so I'd be really interested to be a part of that creative process and see what the limitations to that are. Because it obviously has to be so much more easier said than done. And I think that's the part that I would really like to have a little bit more insight on. And I don't want to come on here and just shit on something because it's very clear that there's a creative process behind this that I'm just not super familiar with. I can come on this mic and say, hey, yeah, you know, you need to add the Spencer 
Monster Mansion or add more Ada or add, you know, Leon's ass. But there's a reason that's not being done. And I don't know why that is. Is it because you got the suits at the top who are saying that's not what people want? People want action and gore or I don't know. I think that's something. We need a Netflix documentary on why these IPs always fall on their face. That's my pitch. I'm sure it's a lot of just creative differences from the director to the screenplay writer to the showrunners to the IP stakeholders within the publishers who kind of manage it and those people rarely all agree and they all have their own visions for the way they want it to look and I'm sure over at Capcom they're like hey we have our own canon timeline and stories already planned out for X many years and we only have this space to give a property like a Netflix series and then you have to get somebody who is going to come in and write it and a showrunner who's excited about it to make it authentic. That's why I think video game adaptations fail so often, right? Is that there's just too many cooks in the kitchen all trying to have hands on how it's going to be represented and then it just ends up getting muddled. And not too dissimilar from our conversation about mobile games, right? Like Mm. a TV show is not a video game. It's just not going to be the same thing. And so it is an even bigger question crossing this medium, you know, not even to mobile games, but to just an entirely different type of media. Like how do you make that your own? How do you make first a good show show that also honors the IP and the lore and the existing stuff. And then, of course, yeah, makes all of these people happy <laughs> as well. It's, it's, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a big question. I think the answer is you don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get to a couple in case you missed it. A new Mafia game has been to be confirmed. Has been to be confirmed is confirmed, I think. Is what I, I, to you know, I picked up what you're putting down, baby girl. Yes. Uh, During a Mafia 20th anniversary interview with general manager Roman Hladek, he said, I'm happy to confirm we've started work on an all-new Mafia project. Of course, it's a few years away and we can't share anything more right now, but everyone's excited. So, yeah, look for a reveal at a Game Awards show or a (laughs) showcase in a year or two. Good Games, episode 350, maybe. Let's see. Ooh, exclusive. Exclusive. Oh, I like it. I like it. And speaking of Netflix, Bioshock has a director. So in case y'all forgot, Bioshock is getting a movie over on Netflix. And it's the Hunger Games director, Francis Lawrence, that's going to be helming the adaptation, according to IGN. While Logan and Blade Runner 2049 writer Michael Green will pen the script. Hey, hey that's exciting. That's a good that's team exciting. up. And Andrea, I know you love Bioshock. I know that's one of your favorite favorite games, right? The first one. Am I right? I got a stuffed Big yeah, Daddy yeah. right over oh, girl, here on my bookshelf. Big Daddy any night. <laughs> <laughs> what? Real quick, like, what would be your pitch for a Bioshock movie? I think a straight adaptation of the first game is it. I don't want like a new original story. I want the story that was in the game because it's so good and the writing is so well done. And so much of the story unfolds via almost like radio diaries instead of fully voiced scenes or fully acted out or animated scenes in the video game because it's a really easy way to get a lot of narrative out while still giving the player control of the character and letting them move around and explore because there's so much exploration in that game. But the setting, this underwater world is so great and the art direction of that first game is so wonderful as well. I wouldn't change it. I would just do a straight adaptation. Do you think Would You Kindly would still work in live action? 
Yes, I do. Hmm. I think if done right, the big reveal at the end could also really be splashy. Just the combat is so intense. I think recreating the feel of Bioshock in a film adaptation will be the challenging part. But, I mean, Francis Lawrence is no rookie. But we'll see. We'll see how it turns out. Casting will be interesting to watch. Hmm. Who they're going to cast and how they're going to do splicers Ooh. on camera. Ooh, that could be really creepy if they go in the horror direction, for sure. I mean, I feel like they have oh, yeah. to go horror. This has to be a horror game. I hope so. Like thriller-ish. Or a horror yeah. film, I should say. Bioshock was the first game that legit, I mean, besides Resident Evil 2. After Resident Evil 2, Bioshock was the first game that I tried to start, but I couldn't with that first little jump scare with a splicer, I think it was. I had to put it down and I couldn't touch it for months. It's funny now because, lol, like, I wouldn't consider Bioshock to be a true blue horror game. Like, the stuff I play is way creepier nowadays, mm-hmm. but back then I was like, nope, not doing it. And I didn't for a long time. Yeah, I mean, the first fight I had with a big daddy was terrifying, mm-hmm. right? They are these large, imposing mechs, and you feel so underpowered, and, you know, they just, like, womp on you. It's great. Jay, did you ever play Bioshock? No, it's also too scary for me. (laughs) (laughs) And it's also first person, I think. I can't play first person games. Yeah, I get motion sick. Mm. Oh, bummer. But yeah, it's uh, exciting. I'm glad that they uh, have some more details. Again, with these movies, it's like, you see it when you see it. Give me a a trailer and, and then we'll talk about that. Continuing on... According to at on deck, the Steam Deck, that is, Twitter top Steam Deck games of August, according to hours played, Brittany, I know you pulled this for one reason. Only. I actually didn't pull this. And that was a, I pulled it. <laughs> oh, you didn't? I thought for sure it was gonna be Brit. No? All right, Re. Oh yes, of course, because vampires. <laughs> yeah, it's because of vampire survivors. Vampire survivors, most played game on Steam Deck. Shout out the three dollar game that could. It is so incredible. Everybody should try it. <laughs> I was just talking to somebody else about this, and they were like, "I have eighty hours into this game. Mm-hmm. Everybody I tell to play is like, yeah, I'll give it a shot, and then gets 30, 40 hours in and is addicted.' And wow, I'm like, okay. okay, wow. I will try it out before the end of the year, so we can get it into game of the year considerations it is there because apparently it's that good. it is that good it's that great wow i'm looking at it I'm right writing now it down. yeah and i was not i don't know what i was expecting but it wasn't this <laughs> yeah the, the so list we is talked about this yeah. when you and i did the show re when britney was out and it's a bullet hell and it's Really interesting because bullet hells run the gamut of design choices and it's interesting the way that they incorporate a lot of the survivor mechanics, obviously with this blood vampire skin. And I never, like even watching gameplay, I was like, this is not a game that I think I want to play, but feels like everyone's talking about it. So I don't want to miss the water cooler moment. It's it's addictive. It's one of those that gets its hooks in you because it's so simple, but the mechanics go so deep, right? Mm. Like there's so much strategy that you can do. It's like, you know, Uno, like, of course, it's a very straightforward game. Everybody knows the rules as soon as you start playing, but you can get really into it with the right group of people. It's the same feeling playing Vampire Survivors once you start making and maxing the weapons you're going to use and you figure out your optimal paths for defeating enemies. You can really lose entire days of your week to this game easily. Well, now y'all know. Check out Vampire Survivors. And the rest of them are, like I think, usual suspects. Cult of the Lamb, Elden Ring, of course, Spider-Man Remastered, everyone's been tweeting about in my feed. Stardew, mm. No Man's Sky, Hades, Multiverses. Yeah. 
Also, Multiverse has announced they have 20 million players, which is mind blown. That game is just the little engine that could. I don't know why I would say that. It's definitely not a little engine. It's being funded by Warner Brothers. So it's a big engine that could, I guess. And then, of course, Monster Hunter Rise hanging in there as well. And Skyrim, you know, Skyrim, the game that never dies. (laughs) <laughs> it's like GTA. They're just going to continue to exist in perpetuity. Yep. Mm-hmm. Everyone's going to keep buying them. And that's going to do it for our news. Keeping the news light this week because we have lots of stuff to talk about, including our time with The Last of Us Part 1 and what Jay and their team have been up to this year for the Games and Online Harassment Hotline. Stick with us, everybody. We'll be right back. everybody. It's the second segment of the What's Good Games podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. We talk about what we've been playing and any events that we have been to. And technically, we did both. Yeah. Granted, one was virtual, but it was super fun. So if you missed it, Rihanna and I had the pleasure of teaming up with the team at the Indie Arena booth at Gamescom once again this year for the Diversity Showcase. I also teamed up with my buddy Steven Spawn from Able Gamers for the Accessibility Showcase. And we got to check out some fun indie games. So we can talk about those first briefly before we dive into our kind of meaty look at The Last of Us Part 1, if that's okay, with everybody. So I wanted to just highlight a couple things that we got to play. And one of them was this really beautiful game called Gibbon Beyond the Trees. Mm. And I appreciate your patience, Rihanna, (laughs) as I was struggling with this game at first because the mechanics were a little challenging for me to get the hang of. So essentially, you play a gibbon, which is a type of monkey. It's set in Southeast Asia, and it's this beautiful hand-drawn art style where you essentially swing through these environments, and it tells the story of what happens to you through your exploration because of deforestation and climate change and pollution and Mm -hmm. how that affects the environment. And I really loved showcasing this because the development team went to great lengths to make sure that they were being culturally sensitive in the depiction of this game and working with specialists from the area and so that they could not only get the climate change and the you know destruction of habitat stuff right but also the depiction of characters and places from this region of Southeast Asia right as well and so I really thought it was a beautiful game yeah. to check out. It was really fun watching you play even though the instructions in the copy that you played were in German and a little bit hard to navigate. We were able to figure it out. Live chat helped quite a bit. 
But the development studio, as you mentioned, Broken Rules, they're actually from Vienna, Austria. So it's really impressive that they went to such great lengths to make this a respectful and accurate representation. And I think it's just so important that we remember games while they can be fun and silly and addictive like Vampire Survivors. They could also be educational and empathetic. So it was really beautiful getting to watch that experience. Absolutely. And another game that I played, which was a complete like <laughs> different change of pace and was really interesting, was called The Wreck. And it's the story of this writer named Junon. And you pick these narrative moments and the choices that you pick can dictate kind of what happens at the end of each level or story beat. But you can have moments where you rewind and fast forward throughout levels to discover clues. Hmm. And it's really interesting the way that it kind of came together and I was really excited to to check it out and play it. I feel like I'm invested in that game now. Like I have to go back and like figure out like what's when gonna happen. When you say yeah. you can find clues, clues of what? Memories, right? So mm-hmm. so you're playing mm-hmm. through different sections of Junon's memories of her experience with her sister, her mother, and just growing up. And then it informs the decisions and the drivers behind them that Junon is working through at the present moment. So you're like sort of scrubbing through memories and trying to figure out what really happened or what was important, what stood out. And it was a very interesting take on a visual novel. Obviously, we've seen many, many versions of them, but this one really felt a lot more lived in like it. And it was something that I said to Andrea as we were playing through the experience or I was watching her playthrough rather. Once Junon is having a conversation with the doctor in one scene, which we saw in the B-roll here, the doctor makes a sentence and then one of the words pops out in Junon's head. And then you get to see her Mm. thinking about that word. And it's very reflective of what I experience when I'm talking to people. Like, they'll say something and I'll be like, oh, I should ask about that. Or, oh, I should just do a follow-up question. But then she says another sentence, the doctor, and then several words pop up. And you have to choose which one you want to ask more about. And so it was very organic in the way that it was presented. And I found it incredibly engaging. Plus, Junon is a really funny character, even though it's a sort of tragic and difficult situation. So it, it was very entertaining. I love these games. They're so different. And uh, the last game that we didn't technically get to play, but we looked at and it looks really, really incredible, is called Desta Memories Between. So this is actually a developer diary that I'm going to show. Um, that we also showed at the showcase. But the reason why we wanted to talk about this is because the story of Desta is one of a non-binary person of color, which is a type of protagonist we just don't get in video (laughs) games very often. And we thought it was really interesting how they take these scenarios with Desta and turn these kind of memories into this, I don't want to call it dodgeball, but this kind of puzzle ball game and how they kind of approach the style of storytelling from a really unique perspective. So I thought it was a really cool game and I'm excited to to check it out. It's from the team that made Monument Valley. So if you ever played that, that game is really amazing and wonderful. And so we thought this was a really cool game to, to highlight. And apparently people in Germany got to play, but if you weren't in Germany, you didn't get to play. Yeah, I'm very oh, excited to actually get our hands on this one. As you mentioned, for us two in Monument Valley, you do have scenes in the memories between where you have that sort of top-down view. However, apparently Desta had a really complicated relationship with a lot of people from their past, and you get to revisit those moments and like 
work through them as memories, similar to to what we were describing in the wreck. However, now you're playing like a turn-based dodgeball version of a conversation, (laughs) which I don't know if you all experience this, but some conversations do sort of feel like uh, a sporting event. And I just think it's so interesting to see all of these different takes on, you know, the way people think through dialogue. And and it's really, really interesting. I, I cannot wait to get my hands on this one in particular. That really reminds me of a game called Signs of the Sojourner, which is also like a roguelike card game, deck builder kind of game. And it also is like the dialogue that happens and all the narrative stuff happens during your card game. And if you make a match, the conversation's going well. If you can't match, the conversation's going south. And then as you build your deck, it is like how versatile your your deck is determines like how many different types of people you can talk to. But also then it's a little, if you can relate to everyone, you can't relate to some people as deeply or as easily. I don't know. I, I thought like the way they did dialogue and connection and relationships in that way was really fascinating. And this sounds like also an interesting way to do dialogue, but built into game mechanics. So yeah, I hope it turns out well. Yeah. And Jay, you have been playing a game that we heard a lot about at the begin well, not really the beginning of the year, but around awards season for both Dice and GDC, a game called Inscription. Yeah, I I just finished it. I just hit credits roll and started diving into the new game plus stuff. It is truly an indescribable game. It is a roguelike deck builder, but that seems like insufficient <laughs> for <laughs> um, explaining what it is. Even, yeah, just watching the trailer, looking at the pictures of it, it is so much more than that. It, it is a game that keeps evolving and keeps changing and surprising you. There is like weird narrative shit that happens. There's weird live action stuff that pops up in there. It's very strange. It's pretty creepy. I am kind of a baby with horror stuff, but it wasn't it wasn't too bad. So if you're scared (laughs) of horror, I think this is this one was still doable for me at least. It is a game that just keeps like surprising you and you never know who to trust or what's really happening. And my friend Dave Proctor said this like really interesting thing about it to me while I was still playing it is that remember that the game wants you to win. And as I kept playing it, that kept having like different truths to it. It was very, I don't know, cool and ominous and interesting. So I had a great time. I love roguelike deck builders. I kept wishing it was harder. I was like, let me just play this card game. But it gives you that in the new game plus too. So if you are like a hardcore deck builder person, it'll give it to you. Just you have to beat the whole game first. (laughs) I love deck building too. I think my issue is I always wonder, is it going to be hard to learn? Is it going to take up a lot of mental energy? But it sounds like the way you described Mm. it is it wants you to win. So it's not too complicated. This one, it's definitely not a big knowledge lift for this game. Perfect. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and dive in to our impressions of the big game of the week. That's right. All that remains of us, Act 1, <laughs> as Brittany has written in the show notes. Now, it's uh, The Last of Us Part 1, the official remake from PlayStation and Naughty Dog. Thank you to PlayStation for providing us with early access copies of the game. Brittany, you have put 
a significant amount of time into this game. Are you at the end? I have, have finished, you finished it? it. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I'm still here. I'm still here. <laughs> yes. Wow. Okay. So let's just remember, friends, that opinions are like assholes. Everyone has one. So if you don't like the stuff we say, it's okay. You can disagree with us, but we can all be kind with our comments because boy, oh boy, the discourse on this game has been very fascinating to read. And I knew it was going to be very fascinating. So Last of Us Part 1 is a remake of The Last of Us, which came out in 2013. Obviously, we've had a remaster that came out like a year later in 2014, which is funny. And then the PS4 Pro got, I think, an updated version of that as well. So when The Last of Us Part 1 remake was announced, there was just a lot of discourse, as we all know. Is this needed? What is this going to provide? What even is a remake in this day and age, right? You have your Final Fantasy 7s, you have your Resident Evil 2s, which completely overhaul a lot of not only the narrative to an extent, but add all new voice acting, dialogue, everything. So what is The Last of Us Part 1 when it comes to a remake? So PlayStation has said it is rebuilt for the PS5, completely rebuilt from the ground up using the Naughty Dog engine technology, visual fidelity, dual sense integration. It's a faithful remake, meaning it's essentially the same exact game all the same dialogue, voice acting, all that, but just kind of rebuilt, if that makes sense. We'll talk about that. And then, yeah, you know, it's just kind of remade for, for this day and age. So, and then there's a speed run mode and then all of the accessibility options, which we'll, we'll talk about in a minute. And I think that's one of the coolest effing things about this remake. Yeah, so, I mean, the last time I touched The Last of Us <laughs> was in 2013 and I played it once, I finished it. And I was like, that was an amazing, incredible experience, but I don't know if I ever want to play it again for some reason it just felt like the sort of game I wanted to be one and done with it was a very emotionally impactful at the time and it left a very obviously a lasting impression on me to the point that I always you know thought about it whenever narrative storytelling video games would come up I'd always think of like the last of us you know that's kind of like a temple that's a staple in this industry and then we just got the last of us part two was that two years ago one year ago two years ago wow wowzers what is time anyway and so going into this game, I since I hadn't touched it since 2013, I wanted to kind of refamiliarize myself with some parts of it. So I watched the first two and a half hours or so on YouTube just to kind of remember how it opened, because that, again, was although one of the most impactful parts is how that game opened. I wanted to see like what led up to that, because all I remembered was a very particular scene. So I watched that. And then I started playing the game itself, and I actually watched someone play the game as I play the game, but they were playing the remaster. And so I was kind of getting a kick out of what has changed and what hasn't. And they're not lying when they say it's literally the exact same dialogue, literally the exact same story. But what you are going to find is, as far from a visual perspective, a lot of the terrain has been rebuilt. The same skeleton of the levels exist. The buildings might look different. They might have different art on them. Maybe the buildings themselves from the outset have been completely redesigned. Maybe a wedding hall that you come across looks way better and there's a lot more detail to it. So all these assets have been recreated and they really lend themselves to the environmental storytelling in a way that I think is really impressive. And when you compare the two together, you're like, oh, Oh, wow. Like, you know, obviously with the technology of today, it just really, really lends itself to this remake. And I think it looks phenomenal. It's gorgeous. This is the tricky part. And I'll be interested to hear Andrea's opinion on this. This is such a weird game to air quote review because 
almost everyone already has a relationship with The Last of Us, whether you've played it once, whether you've played it multiple times, and that relationship is going to affect whether or not you think you want to pay for this remake. For me, as someone who hasn't played since 2013, it was an absolute no-brainer. When PlayStation reached out, I raised my hand immediately. I'm like, I want to review this. I want to revisit this game, especially coming off part two. But if you're someone who has played this game time and time again, and you're like, okay, like I've been there. I've done that. I really have no need to experience that story again, you know, you you might not get the same thrill that I got out of it. What I loved about replaying this was I forgot about a lot of the little moments, the beautiful moments of The Last of Us where things are quiet and air quotes here, peaceful, because, you know, shit's never really peaceful in this game. You know, when maybe Ellie notices a gnome for the first time and there's that really special moment and watching these characters grow and watching their relationship evolve over the course of the game is something that I think was frankly lost on me the first time I played it in 2013. You know, I'm much older now. A lot has changed in the world as we know it. My perspective on things has greatly changed. I'm a mom now. And I think I appreciate watching this relationship develop more than I ever had. And I think that was honestly my favorite part about replaying this game. It's still such a great, fantastic, lovely video game. Lovely, I guess is, you know, objective. I don't know if that's the word you want to use to describe it. It makes you feel emotions. And my notes, I have tragic as fuck on there. I'll pass it off to Andrea. I honestly thought, girl, that (laughs) hopping into this, that it would be a more peaceful experience because I knew how the game was going to start. I knew how the game was going to end. I'm like, I know who's going to live. I know who's going to die. Like, nothing's going to surprise me. But man, I was so wrong because after playing part two, it really shines a whole new light on that whole narrative. And it gets you. It gets you, man. It does. It gets you, which is why I'm not nearly as far into the game as Brittany is because I was having difficulty compelling myself to go back. And so I tweeted a little bit about this when the embargo lifted earlier this week. But I found that emotionally... I'm not in the same place that I was when this game first came out, Mm -hmm. right? A lot has changed in our lives, not just because of the pandemic, which clearly reframes this in a different way because The Last of Us Part Two is much further along into the pandemic, even though they kind of suffered sort of from the same issue because that came out like, you know, only three or four months into the pandemic. But this, I think, is more difficult because it's the beginning. It's like, how do we deal with it? How do Mm -hmm. we emotionally grapple with what it means for people and their families. And then, of course, that opening sequence, like, mm-hmm. I almost I almost quit after the opening sequence. I was like, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not ready. I'm not ready for this. And it's tough. But I want to stress that if you love The Last of Us and you know emotionally that you're ready to go play, play, because it is amazing. It's gorgeous. It really showcases the power of the PlayStation 5 from the lighting dynamics, the way they change some of the animations, the mm. water effects, even as you're walking through it, the upgraded HUD, the the myriad of accessibility. As, as I mentioned, my friend Steven Spawn at Able Gamers is one of the experts in accessibility. And he tweeted that this is yet again a tentpole example of what developers can do if they put accessibility in their plans and 
with intentionality say, hey, we want to make our game accessible. And so hats off to the folks at Naughty Dog for really looking at all the different options for that. But I just don't want to live in this world anymore. It is such a heavy piece of narrative that I don't want to spend the few precious hours I get to play video games week to week on this story again. I likened it to some other heavy hitters, things like a Schindler's List, right? A very important piece of filmmaking that is a story I think everybody should watch, but it's not a movie you go back and just put on on a random Thursday night and be like, yeah, let me just pop that in. It's not that kind of experience, right? And I would say the same for The Last of Us, though clearly based off some of the impressions that I got from people who have gotten the game early as well, that maybe they play it that way. And that's fine. That's great for you. I'm happy for you. But I think what people really wanted to hear from us that had the opportunity to play the game pre-release is, is it worth $70? Mm -hmm. And we talk about on the show all the time that you cannot put the value you would spend on somebody else. And we as media people are put into that position all the time. And it's hard because what we would spend $70 on, maybe you wouldn't or wouldn't you wouldn't think the value is there. I truly believe that this game is worth that price point. If you have a PlayStation 5 and you've never played The Last of Us before, then you should spend $70 and play this. It is... I would say arguably one of the top 20 video games ever made. Naughty Dog has already won all the awards for this game, right? I think what Brittany said is important to remember. This doesn't feel like a true remake. This feels like a hybrid between a remaster and a remake because the dialogue is the same. The way the story unfolds is the same. It is almost shot for shot a recreation of the game that already came out. And some people are going to have trouble with that. And you as a gamer need to decide, does that bother me? Or am I cool with it because it looks so dang good and plays so well? But if you're going to play The Last of Us, you should be playing The Last of Us Part 1 on PlayStation 5 because it's definitively the best way to play that game. And, you know, like I said earlier, if you haven't played it in a while and you have played 2, it is a trip to go back and play Part 1. And I think for me, too, what was really fascinating was... When we play part two, I think for me anyway, I always had a lot of sympathy for Joel. And then I go back and I play part one and I'm like, man, Joel, not the best guy around. <laughs> he's not <laughs> a great dude. And you forget not, about that. He's not a good yeah, guy, really. And, you know, and yeah. at the time I was playing, I'm like, oh, yeah, whatever. But again, a lot has changed. I have changed a lot. And now I have this much more complicated relationship with this character. And my mind is just going. Literally, this morning, I was dreaming about The Last of Us when my baby started screaming in his sleep because he wanted to be let out. I was like, cool, thanks, dude. Like, that's a great way to wake up from a Last of Us dream. I can't stop thinking about it. I can't stop, obviously, dreaming about it just because of just the rabbit hole my mind has gone down that it didn't go down in 2013. So, you know, it could be a good reason to revisit it for that reason alone. Or if you're like, I don't want to, you know, pay 70 I already own the remaster, but I just haven't played that in a long time. Cool, go on with your bad self. But just, again, everyone's going to feel different about it. Opinions are like assholes. And I agree <laughs> with Andrea. I think, yeah, I think it's worth the price point. But, you know, for me, it was it was like experiencing a brand new video game. I would say 
that I feel like some of the mechanics feel a little outdated. You know, maybe more the gameplay. It's that you go into an area, oh, you crouch behind a desk, oh, a bunch of enemies are going to be out, well, you got to be stealthy and take him out, or you got to go in guns a-blazing. It's just kind of that rinse repeat. But again, in 2013, you know, that was something that was a little bit more exciting than it is today. So that's just something else that I thought was an interesting little uh, little tidbit there. To be clear, they did not overhaul the combat mechanics in the game. They've added some quality of life improvements, but they didn't change everything. They didn't add in all of Ellie's abilities in The Last of Us Part 2. Joel doesn't have those in The Last of Us Part 1. And I still have a myriad of issues with combat in both parts. I definitely like the narrative in part one than I did in part two. And if you really want to hear our full <laughs> thoughts, we have an excellent mm-hmm. spoiler cast, which you can go seek out um, wherever you're listening to the podcast or on YouTube and listen to our full conversation about it. So I'm not going to get into that now, but I've always had trouble with the way that combat is in The Last of Us and those problems still exist. They didn't magically go away. So if you are also that person who feels like I do, that the combat doesn't feel smooth enough for you, that the shooting mechanics, you know, need some work and that some of the stealth mechanics are also like not great, then this remake doesn't fix all those with a magic wand. It's better, but it's not, you know, to the level that we've seen other open world games do. And it was such a stark reminder how much work they put into part two when you get to your first town and you go to explore and you can't go into any Mm -hmm. of the buildings. Mm. None of the buildings have doors that you can open. And it reminded me, oh yeah, that was such an impressive part of what they did with part two is that there's so much open world exploration and more narrative story building done through exploration that just doesn't exist in part one. Can I ask a question about the accessibility? Because I know this is a very important discussion that I am not an accessibility expert. I don't feel like I'm qualified to speak on it, but I know in The Last of Us Part Two, I crawled through maybe like the last five hours of the game on the ground with all the accessibility options turned uh-huh. on because I was exhausted playing it, honestly. It was emotional mechanics, as you're mentioning, Andrea. Like I just didn't have the marathon effort in me to keep trying so hard to play the game, but I wanted to see the story. Is that something that you can do now in Part One with these accessibility options retrofitted and do you think that should come at an additional cost to the players so are you talking about how you could crouch and go in stealth mode in the anime yes right. that is back and i know that because i also use okay, it good right? <laughs> yeah there's a particular part in the first game and i was just not on my a game and i was like you know what i'm just gonna crouch through this and i did and it was it was great you know, we gave a shout out to the lovely Steven Spawn. Another Steve that's kick-ass is Steve Saylor. And he did The Blind Gamer. He did an awesome 10-minute video on The Last of Us Part 1. He actually consulted with Naughty Dog on it. Highly recommend you check it out. But he did mention how there are 60 new accessibility options and some other cool new features that were added. So I just wanted to give him a shout out because we are on the topic of accessibility. I do wish, and I hear your question about like, should this be something that's just tacked on? And my hope, though, is for the future that games will be built with this in mind. So it will just become a part of the package because Steve did talk about how even though these features have been added to part one, that they work really well. But because the core game in 2013 wasn't really designed with accessibility in mind, that sometimes those options can get in the way of the gameplay. And I actually Mm. did experience this a little bit with a bloater. I had enough of that motherfucker. And I was like, I'm crouching. (laughs) I don't want to see you. But he kept following me around. So I was just like, my face was just in that guy's crotch because he would not leave me alone. 
alone. I was like, oh my God, why is her pubic hair? What's happening? Oh God. Oh, I was close, Re. I was real close. They so, really remastered that, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I just thought that was a fun little tidbit. Well, to answer your question about should it come as an added cost, I think the answer is no, mm-hmm. it shouldn't. But I want to call out that this game was designed for the PlayStation mm-hmm. 3 as a reminder, right? So this was a long time ago that they originally started working on this game. And accessibility clearly wasn't a priority for many game developers and publishers out there. And thankfully, because of people like Steve Saylor and Steven Spawn and many other disability advocates, it's becoming a priority for many more developers out there. And the tools now for the new generation of consoles and PCs are way broader than they used to be, right? And so I think it's important to remember that when this game came out, almost none of those options that we see in what Naughty Dog is doing now were either available or baked into the production pipeline. So while I don't think it should come as an added cost, it has an added cost, right? It has a human cost, right? There is a developer or a team of developers who have to work on these. They have to get paid. The tools that they use have to get bought by the studio, have to get integrated into their engines, right? There's an actual cost. And unfortunately, that has to get passed on to the consumer. And that means gamers with disabilities have to pay to play games that make them accessible. And I don't think that they should have to buy The Last of Us Part 1 to be able to play it, but that's unfortunately where we're at right now. And so I think what I've seen Steven Spawn talk about, and you know, as Brittany did, I will also say like we are we're not the experts <laughs> in this, right? You go to the people who do disability work in the gaming community and see what they have to say, but he's like, we it's better that this exists than it doesn't mm-hmm. exist, even if it comes at a cost. That's that's the best best answer. (laughs) The other shout out I want to give is um, to John Lineman of Digital Foundry, and because we haven't really broken down all of the new tech improvements, and there's a lot of them, but it kind of all gets in the weeds. And I would just sound like I'm pretending like I know what I'm saying because that's what would be happening. But go check out that article. It goes into some really like in depth new technical advancements that this game has, from like the shadows from a muzzle flash to the way light reflects off of different materials. And just, you know, the, the the little things that I don't think we necessarily pick up on as players who don't really know how that whole part of the development process works. But it goes to show you that a lot of work did go into this. So go check that out. They always do great work over there. Yeah. I posted a gameplay clip that I took on my Twitter account that shows... Ellie, Joel, and Tess walking through some water. And I want to call it, if you go to watch it, to watch how the ripples in the water respond dynamically to the way the characters are walking through it. And that's not a easy feat to create <laughs> in video games. Like the idea that there's this reactive water tech with the way that it ripples and the way that the light reflects off the ripples in the water. It's really remarkable. And those little details I think we take for granted because of how photogrammetry has progressed over the last couple of years in particular. And I think we expect that incredibly high bar that Naughty Dog has set for itself. But I mean, they reach it if not exceed it with this game with the technical prowess that's working behind the scenes to make this really gorgeous gameplay experience i think for that alone like the price point is worth it but you know again decide what you want if you think it's worth it or you think sony's robbing you of your money you know then don't (laughs) buy it i guess congrats to the development team and and everybody involved it sounds like they really did put their heart and soul into giving this a a new skin (laughs) and then some so yeah that's really good to hear i'm glad that you both felt positive about the efforts put in yeah yeah absolutely 
Hey, everybody, this is a quick aside before we get you back to the rest of the content of the podcast, because we want to give a shout out to our wonderful patrons at patreon.com slash what's good games that help make this show possible. It's that time of the month again where we get to announce some names. Very exciting. <laughs> um, so let's go ahead and run through these. We'll just go in a row here. Brittany, me and then Re. Let's go. Fargo Brady. Ryan Saffel. Nathaniel Edison. Bill Rosas. Tyler Adams. Erskine James. Casual Blasphemy. Trek 24. Omega 3. Jason Luck. Marooned at Noon. Daniel Hull. Eric Z. Dracos 3442. Um, Chewie's Godson. Major <laughs> Nail Biologist. Excess Oddities. Tara Bruno. Tramp Berry. Sean I. Elizabeth Douglas. Brian R. Johnson. Justin Foshi. Patrick Landry. Punctified. Rob Leonard. Patrick Higgins. Kenneth Stimmel. Trent Pennington. Emily Kent. Sarah Zetka. <laughs> Jessica Bloom. <laughs> Patrick Weller. I'm getting all the Patricks today. This is great. You are. Matthew Goddard. <laughs> Noelle Navarez. Chris Wing. Tyler McCall. Joe Wilson. Devin Nitz. Adriana Rockwell. Shy Jackson Burgess. Renata Burns. Giselle Bada. Gary Peck. Dale Sun. Robert F. Freemering. Carl Milne. Marcus Ian Brown. Pete, maker of shoes. <laughs> Bill Stillwell. <laughs> <laughs> Teresa Ennert. Jason DeMail. Alex Regopoulos. Andrew Cotton. David Akalucci. Elmo Shell. Gio Corsi. Molly Bittner. Isaiah Mejia. Yum. Nicole Humphrey. Yum. <laughs> it's like the Red Robin tune. Stephanie Fitzwilliam. Yum. And the last but certainly not least, John Drake. Aww. Take a shot, everybody. I said, Take a shot. I said John. I said Disclaimer. John Disclaimers indeed. <laughs> all right. Thank you to one. Thank you to all. We love that you support our mission and our voices. We love that so many of these names we've been reading every single month since we launched in 2017. Thank you to all of the new names that we get to read this month as well. And if you want to add your name to the list, patreon.com slash what's good games is the place to do it. Now let's get back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. It is our feature segment. And I haven't really broken it out into a feature yeah. segment for a while, but feel like Jay coming back to the show is worthy of us dedicating an entire segment to. So as a reminder, Jay is the director for the Games and Online Harassment Hotline. And if you missed Jay's appearance on the show last year when they were here, Jay, would you mind just refreshing everybody about who exactly the hotline is and what you guys do over yeah, there? Yeah, so the Games and Online Harassment Hotline is a free, confidential, text message-based emotional support hotline for anyone who makes or plays games. And so, yeah, to, to reach us, you just text support, the word support, to 23368 from anywhere in the USA. We are online every day from 3 to 7 p.m. Pacific, but you can text in anytime. That's just when we're going to text you back. So whenever you're wanting to reach out and, and talk to someone who is like here to listen and also gets games, you can reach out to us and we'll text back within a day whenever we're on next. And yeah, I really think that's what makes us special and stand out from other, you know, mental health or emotional support resources is that we really understand the context of gaming 
gaming communities, the games industry, and just like what it's like to be online and, and face that harassment sometimes on like that daily, constant, forever basis that like it really feels just so ubiquitous sometimes. And yeah, we've really heard folks struggle to get like mental health support sometimes without that context. And so, yeah, that's what we really kind of strive for is to to provide this space where you don't have to explain the kind of foundational culture of things. We already get it. So we can focus on what's going on with you. God bless you. <laughs> yes, exactly. And how the hotline works with texting was recently demonstrated in a video game I talked about last week. We are OFK. I love that you partnered with the team behind that game to really show exactly how texting with the hotline works. Yeah, that was so, it's, you know, such an honor and so cool to have like a video game cameo uh, for the hotline and so beautiful to have it in such a, such a beautiful and emotional game to really show like this example of, of reaching out for help because it, it can feel really scary. I think there's a lot of stigma around mental health in general and also hotlines specifically about like, you know, are they going to, call the police on us? Are they going to like, am I going to get in trouble for something? Yeah, we love any and all ways to try to kind of dispel some of that stigma and those myths and fears, because like, especially on the games hotline, we're very specific in particular about, you know, we don't do reporting, we're not going to tell your boss, or anyone else like what's going on, including the police, like we don't call the police on folks without their consent. And like, we really try to find ways to meet folks' needs where they are and where they want it rather than prescribing onto them, you know, what's good or, or what the right thing to do is. That was something we talked a lot about when you were on the show last year, this idea of people having apprehensions about reaching out and using a resource like this, but also very much needing a resource like this. And it's great to hear that there's been more people that are taking advantage of it. And one of the things we also talked about last year, which was surprising to me and also really interesting to hear you talk about was how the harassers were using you as a resource. Have you seen that increase, decrease? Is it still something that you guys are figuring out how to deal with? Yeah. To say one more thing about We Are OFK, I think it's like really important to like show and normalize the like how kind of chill it can also be to just reach out for help and talk to someone and and then go about your day. We're really trying to find more video games specifically to kind of integrate the hotline with, whether it's like showing it like through the actual narrative and in the gameplay, which is freaking amazing with We Are OFK. But even with like pause screens after really heavy cutscenes or part like something happening in a game that might be potentially triggering to some folks, you know, it is important to tell like heavy and and tragic and hard stories but it's also important to make sure everyone's okay while they're playing it and so we've been trying to find integrations there with like yeah in the loading screen after a triggering scene why don't you just have like the games hotline there to mm. so that folks who need that moment to breathe can reach out to someone so anyways jumping back to your question <laughs> we've been talking a lot with like folks who are experiencing harassment as well as yeah we've continued to have conversations with folks who have actually caused harassment it is really interesting talking again specifically within games about harassment because 
when we talk sometimes with other organizations that do online harassment work outside of the gaming space, it can feel very us versus them. But within games, there's a little bit different of energy there because it's kind of just all us. It's like it's coming from within the house, right? Like it's it's our own community kind of perpetuating these cycles towards each other. And so really rarely can you really talk to someone who is like flaming folks or trash talking or, you know, or escalating to like really problematic harassment and toxicity who has not also kind of experienced or seen that modeled for them as well. And so part of what I talked about last time was when we understand harassment as this like issue of the ecosystem of games kind of not really modeling and and perpetuating healthy behaviors, we also have to like when those individuals come to us and and talk to us and reach out for support, we also have to recognize that it's it's not them, it's, it's the environment, not these individuals that we need to, you know, somehow pick out and throw out. So we've continued, you know, working on how to have those better accountable conversations. We've actually also created a support space this year. We, we piloted it kind of quietly just through the hotline when folks would reach out talking about harm they've caused or harassment that they've been doing for a long time or something like that. A lot of them talked about feeling so disconnected and isolated and lonely and lost in that experience of even acknowledging that they had done something wrong and wanting to change and not knowing how and not feeling like anyone cared. We kind of just had the idea of like, what if we at the very least just brought these people together to just talk about that shared experience and see if maybe we can support each other towards that journey of change and accountability. So that's been kind of like a new a new little program that we've been running. And that's been really, really interesting and also really beautiful too. It's definitely continued evolving here. Just a few things that you've been up to over the past year. And I don't want to obviously hog Jay's time. So if either of you have questions, just jump on in there. But I definitely have a question for Jay. Yeah. Yes. So not wanting to pry too much into everyone's personal life at the online hotline. How do you and your coworkers keep Mm. that empathy fresh? How do you keep it up? Because obviously... As mothers, I know Brittany and Andrea understand how exhausting it can be to care for other people. And (laughs) most people in their daily lives have a certain amount of empathy load that they're taking on, especially now during and after a pandemic. So what are some things that you would recommend to people who are trying to make the spaces they're in better do to keep that motivation up and keep that energy up because it can be so draining? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you so much for bringing that up. I think that's another one of the big things that we really have focused on growing and improving this year and this kind of second year of, of operation. We have really focused on ourselves. Like, what do the agents need? What do the supervisors need? What do we as a team need to keep this work going? Because yeah, you can't do this alone. I think when you really see folks in like caretaker roles, maybe even like, even like less defined caretaker roles, like you just kind of are the mom of the group or something, or, or you're the person in a, in a workplace that everyone kind of goes to, that burnout largely comes from the isolation and loneliness of doing it, of feeling like if I don't do it, no one else will. It just like all relies on me. Like I want something different. I want something kinder. And, and I have to be the one to bring that solely. It just is not sustainable and is really, 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 really impossible. And so we really always focus on that here when we're doing this work of like, we're not doing it alone. It can feel kind of 
that way when we're on the hotline, we're just at home, we're all remote across, you know, North America. And, you know, it, it can feel like you're doing it just by yourself at your desk. But we constantly remind each other and constantly call on each other and ask for help in this way that isn't like, I'm not good enough, so I need help. But in fact, I want to be better. So please be, please show up for me. And that has been something we've really focused on of like, how can we actually in- improve the way that we show care to each other? How do we hold better space to debrief? And a lot of these conversations, agents will have their own triggers or their own reactions happening. You know, we're talking about a lot of violence day to day. We're talking about a lot of like just really awful situations that people are in. And of course, the agents have reactions and feelings. You know, there are things we want to yell at the screen, (laughs) but we can't actually, we don't want to actually say over the hotline. It doesn't mean that those feelings are invalid, but we need a space to hold them. And I think that's what we have each other for. And so we'll often kind of, you know, debrief with each other or have just like kind of, I don't know, even really honoring like anger as like a form of healing that it's like really great to just yell it out and and be angry and and scream. And that is an important part of like healing and keeping us going and stuff too. So yeah, as as a scattered answer, we've just like really, really focused on this year, exactly what you're talking about. Like this is the work of care, the work of empathy requires so much fuel on, on the other side too, of like providing this abundance of empathy and care for each other as well. Wonderful. I also used to work in a very, very high stress environment. And I think you hit the nail on the head. Having friends around you or colleagues who understand what that pain Mm -hmm. is like honestly makes all the difference (laughs) in the world. And it's really crucial to your support circle. We've talked a lot about the program, but I, I was wondering if you had a message maybe for someone who's listening, who wants to know, or maybe who's worried they would feel like a burden if they were to come in or call in rather, you know, do you have a message for them? Some words of encouragement, perhaps to maybe, you know, try to encourage them to call in if they need the help. We definitely hear varieties of kind of this sentiment when folks reach out, you know, like, I don't want to bother anyone or, you know, I don't know that this experience is like serious enough or, you know, I don't know that I'm in crisis or, um, you know, I don't want to take up space if you need to help someone who really does need help, like, unlike me. It's such a common sentiment, actually. So I think my first response is like, that's very normal to to feel that way. I think in moments of struggle, like, I think some some part of our brain does want us to like, just lock down, protect, stay by yourself and like, don't let anyone in, don't let anyone hurt you anymore or again in the future. And that's natural. You know, I think that voice can be part of your brain and and body like trying to protect yourself. So like, thank you to that voice trying to protect you. At the same time, you know, so much research has shown that when, you know, the thing that really sets apart something from being like, just like kind of a bad thing that happened, like an adverse life experience versus something that's like more traumatic or something that sticks with you. It's not actually so much about what happened, but it's about how connected you are when it happens. And that's why things can like affect people so differently. You know, the same type of thing happening to other people, to, to each person. There's a million factors. People are, are going to just react differently to different situations. But one of the things too is, you know, the same type of event can happen to you at different points in your life. And the more connected you are, the less likely your brain is going to actually hold on 
on to that as as trauma and have that like haunt you for for a longer period of time. It still sucks. It's still like this really awful thing that happened. But that social connectedness part is actually so so crucial to that healing and and to that kind of natural process of your brain like moving through the event. Whether that is reaching out to a friend or reaching out to a hotline or reaching out to another like method of healing, it's it's so important to like find that. And and it isn't about how bad, quote unquote, the situation is or how bad, quote unquote, that you might feel because we, we really look at the whole picture, right? That, you know, again, harassment, mental health, kind of like toxic or abusive situations, they happen on the spectrum. And it isn't just the the peak of the iceberg that is the most important. It's the whole it's the whole picture. Yeah, I think that's what I would say that that you are important. It is worthwhile. And and really, truly, this is what we're here for. (laughs) We're not a crisis hotline. We don't really gatekeep what folks bring. We're here for anyone who makes or plays games. We're here to offer emotional support and, you know, share basic guidance and wisdom that we may have related to your situation. But there's no bar for who you have to be or, or what you have to be going through to reach out. That's great. And it's so important, I think, for people to remember that your feelings are valid and your feelings matter. I love that you guys are embracing <laughs> anger as a method of expression because we talk about all the time how people just don't know what to do with their anger and because they don't know how to tackle it or, or approach it head on or analyze it, it manifests in really problematic and troublesome ways like online mm-hmm. harassment and toxicity. And I think anger doesn't have to be this nasty thing. It can be a useful tool. And I think that that's great that you're exploring yeah. that. Shout out yeah. to Inside Out. <laughs> all of the emotions <laughs> are important. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, I haven't seen that movie in a long time. We started watching it the other day with uh, my daughter, and it was clear that she was not <laughs> ready for that. Not Let enough music back numbers on, to, keep, to keep her. <laughs> yeah, pr- pretty much. Exactly. So going forward into year three of the hotline, do you and your team have specific goals or are there things you're trying to accomplish? Like what is the future for what you are trying to do with the hotline? Yeah, we have big dreams, but thinking about year three, we're trying to continue increasing the accessibility of the hotline. We're looking into some like potential like WhatsApp integration so that folks currently it's SMS only. You text that word support to 23368, our short code. That's kind of the only way you can contact us right now. But we are, yeah, we're trying to figure out are there ways we can get WhatsApp added in there? So if you don't have SMS or if you prefer like being on this kind of web connected chat, that's an option for you too. We're also really thinking about resource and knowledge sharing. That's so, I think one of the things that's like so special about the games hotline is kind of how niche and, and special and like specific it is. I mean, because we were, were founded and led by people who have you know, been directly impacted by online harassment, have dealt with like abuse in the game space. Just like, I don't know, we just have such a deep well of knowledge that we're pulling on of just like experience and also just we've we've been in it for so long that just makes the way that we do all of the things that we do different. And that definitely comes through on the hotline. We're trying to figure out ways to share that information with folks even who don't, who may never text the hotline, but still maybe like find a use for that 
information or knowledge. And so I don't know, we just there are so many things we talk about in our meetings, trying to figure out, you know, what's the best way we can respond to this type of incident, or this type of situation, we're getting so many people texting us about it. Let's reach out to some experts, let's reach out to the different like advisors that we have, and specialists and and put together a guide for like the agents on how to like better support people around this. And why does it have to stop there? We want to be able to share that out publicly as well to really, yeah, not gatekeep this information as much as we can. So I think that's what we're kind of thinking towards in year three. How do we, you know, translate some of the like knowledge and and skills and stuff we've developed for working the hotline into like these public facing materials that anyone anywhere in the world online can access and we started that actually, we just launched our really giant ultimate comprehensive guide called How to Stay Safe from a Hate Raid. Hmm. It's targeted at streamers. It like pulls together a whole bunch of like community, community wisdoms and also tools developed by folks in the community of like moderators and streamers to really like put together just this like full top to bottom guide on hate raids specifically. And, and that came from exactly that same place of like, how do we pull this together? How do we share this with everyone? Because we know that these things, they come and go kind of in waves, but they've been around for a long time and they'll, they'll probably continue to be around for a while. It's sad that that's <laughs> the case, but you're not wrong. But it's good that there are resources like that. I, mean, I remember the even the phrase hate raid didn't exist, you know, X amount mm-hmm. of years ago. And now it's sadly an occurrence that we talk about semi-frequently. And it's like, why? Why do people just behave so badly? Yeah. 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 And it, it keeps no slight, every time it slightly changes the way they look. Really like trans streamers, black streamers have been dealing with like some version of this, whether it was called a hate rate or not, for for many years now. Um, it's, it's not a new phenomenon, but it is... Again, coming and going in terms of its spotlight and and the waves of it. So let's share the resources we have now and the wisdom that the community has really brought together and yeah, do what we can to to keep each other safe and and also again to like hold each other during this stuff because it is we, we dream of a world where where there isn't harassment and we actually are perpetuating healthier norms in the community, of course. But in the meantime, all we have is each other. We don't have too much more time, but I wanted to ask you about the metaverse. Mm. So this is a really controversial new world that it seems like pretty much every video game (laughs) publisher is exploring. Obviously, there's some metaverses and video games that have been existing for quite some time, uh, decades even, if we're talking about stuff like Second Mm -hmm. Life, right? Is that something that your team at the hotline is contemplating folding into your services like how do we talk to developers about how to keep people safe in metaverse worlds how do we talk to players and developers alike about how to act and be a good citizen in these virtual spaces because i think we have some really great resources as you mentioned for online forums Mm. and multiplayer gameplay. And that seems like a lot of developers have been working on that for some time, but the metaverse feels like it's this giant open book for terrible harassment to take place when it doesn't need to, right? Yeah, I I think that is definitely an important conversation to, to be having. We've definitely participated in some like, panels or like articles and stuff like that uh, around this topic because it is 
there is kind of this like different level of vulnerability and exposure that folks have in these like kind of more VR spaces. You know, being in VR, your body really does feel like it's it's vulnerable. You know, it feels like something mm-hmm. <laughs> something is close in a different way than when it feels close on a screen. And so there are definitely when especially when we talk about like sexual violence and, and gender based harm in that way. There's a different feel and flavor to it when it is like in VR in this kind of like metaverse kind of space. And so, yeah, I, I, I really wish that the conversations as in these like new spaces as they're getting built, it is so important to set norms for treating each other with like dignity and respect and and that whole package and of course it's easier said than done and unfortunately a lot of like existing games culture could be imported in an easier way to just kind of keep things the same but it is this like really unique opportunity to say like no we we start with these base level of like security measures and safety and safety tools you know we give everyone the agency they have to like protect themselves to like block people so that they don't even see their avatar any at all and just like have have those tools in reaction but also like you said like set the cultural norms of like what that's just not how you act here like how do we how do we get there of like the idea of like harassing someone or making someone feel unsafe or uncomfortable is just like unthinkable and kind of gross to to, to approach. That's the dream. The dream. That <laughs> is the dream. <laughs> all right, ladies, any final questions for if Jay? You just one more time, let people know how to find you. All. Yeah. So you can find us, find more information about us on our website, gameshotline.org. You can text the hotline. Our number is 23368. It's a short code. If you want to reach out and get connected with someone, you just text support to 23368. If you don't feel like you want to like text in right now or get connected to anyone, you can still save the number in your phone. You can text info to 23368. It won't connect you with anyone, but it'll just kind of like have that message history there and give you a little blurb about us. You can also follow us on social media at Games Hotline anywhere on the interwebs. And yeah, I think that's it. If anyone wants to get involved, can you remind folks how they can? Yeah, on our website, we have a contact form. If you want to reach out, if you're interested in in volunteering or even interested in being an agent sometime, we have a great team and we're doing some really cool stuff over here. So yeah, you are. Yeah. And I believe you're doing some fundraising. Yeah, we did a, a couple fundraisers throughout this month for our birthday. If folks wanted to give us a little gift for two years. But yeah, our service is free. It always will be for, you know, as long as we are sustained and around. We definitely want all the things that we do, all the resources we make, all the services we provide to be as free as possible. But it is expensive to run a hotline. So um, if you if you want, if that's one way that you want to support us, it's really meaningful when people donate um, monetarily and keep us going and, and sustain this work and, and really help us shift, yeah, some of those norms that we were talking about in the games community. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming back to the show and talking to us about all the great work that you and your team are doing over at the Games and Online Harassment Hotline. We'll have all of the links for y'all in the notes below. So if you want to just click on over, you can go check them out on the web. Jay, thank you again for being on the show. And to everybody else watching, we will see you guys next week. Bye, everybody.